वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक The syntalkers around the table today discuss the shapes and forms. We'll think about shapes and forms, how they come to be and how they evolve. Why do entities and bodies have the shape that they have? Can any shape be made? Is the nano scale very different from the macro scale in this context? Why isn't all naturally occurring matter just spherical? Do geometrically regular triangles, rectangles, tetrahedrons, etc., exist in nature? Is all matter porous? Are all swarms similar in some sense? How do basic interaction rules lead to surprising emergent forms? Do shapes influence properties and vice versa? Do shapes play a fundamental role in evolution of large bodies? and what is the very very long term future of shapes in the universe we are pleased and privileged to have two sin talkers with us here today professor polikal ajayan is in the school of engineering in rice university at houston He has been working on nanomaterials for over two decades now. And Dr. Sashi Thutupalli, he is at NCBS and ICTS at Bangalore. After having trained in the physical sciences, he currently works at the intersection of biology and physics. So Ajayan, why don't we set the ball rolling with you um, to maybe go to the scales that you probably feel the most comfortable with, to the nano scales? What does the world look like there visually, and you know, obviously mean it in a somewhat metaphorical sense? What does it look like? What are the shapes like? What are the forms like? Is it is it like the world that we see at the macro level? How different is it, and why? So let me first say that uh, you know we have all been fascinated by shapes one uh, in our lifetimes, mm-hmm. whether it is a snowflake that forms on your window or yeah. whether it is a beautiful mineral crystal that forms. Uh, they all have specific shapes and specific crystal habits, and um, there there is a reason why certain things look like that, particularly in the inorganic materials. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we'll also talk about the. Uh, organic and living beings and that'll be a different story sure but uh, you know you asked me about nano scale which is really a billionth of a meter so extremely small uh, mm-hmm. space uh, i mean if you think about shapes which is uh, which could be generally defined as the um, geometry of a surface yeah. and it depends on the atomic interactions that occurs at the surface so there is a Uh, atomic scale meaning for shapes although at the macro scale we look at uh, uh, whatever we can um, you know feel and whatever we can uh, visually draw, perceive uh, draw a contour on uh, sure. right but uh, essentially uh, you know whether it is a larger scale or smaller scale the reason why certain things look the way they do uh, or the shapes look the way they do is because uh, there is a minimization of energy 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, what do you mean by that? So, uh, again, you know, when you create a surface, and as I said, um, shape is determined by the geometry of the surface. And mm-hmm. when you create a surface, you are doing work to break bonds and create uh, a surface right. uh, from the bulk. So, okay. the atom sitting on the uh, surface is different from the bulk uh, because they have higher energy. And they would like to shrink and go into the bulk. Right? Mm-hmm. So whenever you look at the surface, what you're seeing is this: the atoms feeling its uh, uh, high energy state, and they somehow wants to bury inside. Right. And of course, it can only do that for a certain volume. So it, you attain a minimum, uh, you know, surface. Uh, so the total energy or total work done is minimized uh, for any surface that you see. Sure. Uh, but not all atoms are similar, right? It has to do. Not with, all uh, atoms are similar, and how uh, different are they? Uh, again, in this shape context. So, I mean, I think it's basically the the interaction between atoms that matters, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the simplest thing would be um, like, like a metal, let's say a sing- simple metal crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only one kind of atom sitting, and you can essentially think about a shape that minimizes the total energy. Right. Of course, if you add an, another kind of atom, like an alloy, mm-hmm. uh, the energetics is going to be different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, typically, uh, most of the inorganic crystals are anisotropic because right. there is an orientation relationship uh, in terms of energy. Right. So if I cut, I take a crystal and cut it into a certain shape, it really depends on the facets that you create when you cut uh, in certain orientations. Those what do you mean by facets? So uh, let's say I take a spherical body, mm-hmm. you know, yes, um, and uh, when you, let's say, create certain um, directions Slices and planes mm. from that. Uh, mm. You know, in a, in a crystal, unlike uh, a liquid droplet or an amorphous material, you have well-oriented planes and well-oriented uh, directions. And the density of atoms and density of uh, molecules in different directions How and fine planes. can one go, Ajay? Well, when you're talking about facets in this particular case mm-hmm. they are atomically smooth but that doesn't mean that they are you know completely smooth because <laughs> there's still going to be some undulations between atoms right right, right. but the point i'm trying to make is that uh, if you have to minimize surface energy uh, and if you compare something like liquid which is or amorphous material which is isotropic mm-hmm. a sphere gives you the minimum surface area for a certain amount of volume mm-hmm. right but when you go to a crystalline materials, because different orientations have different energy, different facets have different energy, mm-hmm. a sphere is not the thermodynamically Stable. minimum energy state. Right. So if I take a simple metal, for example... Uh, and yeah, Let's I've, take an example such as... Yeah, so let's say gold. Gold, right? sure. And if I start to build the minimum energy surface for gold, mm-hmm. right, for a certain amount of volume, mm-hmm. it is not going to be a sphere. Because if I create a sphere, I have all different orientations on the surface of the sphere. Mm. Right? Mm. So essentially a gold particle, if it is thermodynamically in equilibrium, Mm-hmm. Right. What you will see are these low energy facets. So these this fundamental low energy thermodynamically stable state does it depend on the volume? It so, would depend on the number of atoms you're looking to pack together, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, again, we are minimizing energy for a given volume. Sure. Right? Uh, sure. So what all I'm saying is that uh, uh, if I take the same volume and I compare a spherical entity with uh, a nicely faceted entity, mm-hmm. for crystalline anisotropic material, the faceted entity would be much more energetically favorable. Right. Right? Right. In fact, there is a, a beautiful construction that gives you 
the thermodynamic shapes of crystals called mm-hmm. the wolf construction mm-hmm. right it was essentially uh, you know the, the whole idea of surface energy minimization was coined by uh, gibbs uh, with this famous uh, gibbs free energy and so on sure uh, so he predicted that essentially an isotropic material would have a spherical shape because it minimizes uh, total surface energy mm-hmm. for volume and then it was taken up by many people uh, including george wolf uh, in the early 1900s mm-hmm. uh, and he created a mathematical formulation in creating or drawing how an equilibrium shape of a crystal would look like mm-hmm. and uh, you know this is a well known um, uh, construction where you draw uh, from a centroid of a particle um, lengths corresponding to the surface energy vectors right and when you take the inner envelope of all so these so wolf construction again is a shape or it's a method it's a it's a process that so, gives you the shape Right. So if I draw the, all these surface energy maps and then draw these vectors and take the inner envelope, right. uh, depending on isotropic or anisotropic, I get shapes. Right. 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 So right. Wolf right. construction is just a method, and and this is particularly for a freestanding uh, metal particle or a, or a simple, uh, you know, crystalline particle, uh, which has no other interactions with the environment or substrate or so on and so forth. Mm. So, and and essentially, it has to be reasonably large, so that uh, it is it, it can be equilibrated. You But know, again, not all crystals are same, right? They're different crystals. Yeah, so so they all they all look different shapes. So right. I, I was coming to that. Uh, essentially, if you look at, I mean, the simplest example would be to look at uh, minerals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So minerals have been formed under uh, you know extreme conditions, uh, but for a long time it has been equilibrated. Mm. Uh, so somebody said, actually, uh, it's a famous saying that uh, the shapes of minerals and crystals mm-hmm. are the uh essentially the existing free energy surfaces that nature has right so <laughs> That's true. i mean That's so it, beautiful yeah, yeah so basically it is true of course it reflects the intrinsic because they've happened over thousands and millions of years yeah because it has yeah. time to equilibrate right yeah yeah and for example if you take uh, uh, a quartz you know it'll look a hexagonal on the outside right. because it reflects hexagonal symmetry right or if you take something like a, a garnet it'll be cubic uh, right. you take something more complicated like rutile it'll be vesicular right so i mean depending on how the surface energy plays and their intrinsic crystal structure you can really look at these crystals and say oh this is intrinsic symmetry this is a shape that it would form thermodynamic and are these stable shapes now so for the larger crystals they are reasonably stable I mean, so they are not really evolving in 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 the traditional so sense that, that so a billion the, years from now quartz would still have the same shape yes i mean if it is under the conditions that it exists more right? or less yes uh, so again going back to the scale that you talked about nanoscale mm. right when particle sizes become smaller and smaller and smaller mm. then things become complicated because there is certain amount of energy available to any system Mm-hmm. Uh, right i mean in the environment there is uh, the boltzmann constant gives sure. you uh, sure. energy of the equivalent to kt sure. so if you have multiple shapes that are possible and they are separated by very small energy scales mm-hmm. and if that energy scale is compatible with the existing energy that is in the environment then the shapes could actually easily fluctuate and you know uh, evolve so in my phd we were actually looking at extremely small particles of metal gold mm-hmm. and you can see that uh, if they are not strongly supported by the substrate mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. they keep changing their shapes continuously because certain amount of energy that the kt type of energy that is available is enough to 
change when their you say shape. change, you mean fluctuate between two different forms, yeah, or so, it's actually constantly so changing to a different new form? No, between different shape, between different forms, right? right. So let's say uh, I take gold, and there are some typical low energy shapes for these materials, like mm-hmm. the icosahedra, the dodecahedra. Uh, so they can morph into or, each other. In yeah, some so sense. they can morph into each other because the free energy surface is very flat. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, yeah. it's activation barrier that keeps you from, uh, you know, being in one shape versus the other, right? Yeah, that's so, very interesting. I yeah, think so, we'll... we'll uh, Come back to some of these questions, Ajayan. What is what is shapes for you, uh, Shashi? What is I mean, if we think of it in the maybe a scale slightly larger than the nano scales, and we go to the biological units, whatever they might be, and I leave it entirely to your discretion. And now you want to define it? Are how regular or irregular are things in that context? And you know, this is a question topologically and geometrically posed, as opposed to so that's the sense in which I want to use the word regular and irregular. Right. So this is probably a great uh, point to take off from what Ajayan was saying uh, about these sort of interaction energies Mm. between the constituents Mm. and the thermal energies. Right. Mm. So a lot of biology and biological structure... And just just to be clear, when we say thermal energy, we mean internal energy. We mean the fluctuations that's caused by the temperature in a room, for example. KT. KT. Exactly. Right. So... so biology, I mean, biological structure emerges in the face of these fluctuations. Right? For example, uh, and if you look at uh, any biological form, you, it's always fluctuating in this sense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not static like a crystal. Um, so are there stable biological forms? Are there the so equivalents for, of quartz in your world? Which So there are stable, I mean... One might think of our form as being stable in some sense right? <laughs> yeah. because you're not <laughs> melting away on some. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're probably melting away on some time scale, but not at the time scale that we are alive, right? Right. Um, right. So it's stable, but then it's still uh, it's still sort of fluid enough for you to be able to make movements, for you to be able to uh, sense things, actuate things, and so on and so forth. Right. And so there's this delicate balance somehow between maintaining structure which is achieved by these interaction energies, and still be able to use the energy that you consume with the food you eat and the, you know, consume the ATP and so on to be able to achieve these tasks. Right? So you're so, saying, so are, are you, is there a way of generalizing that to say that any system which is interacting more with the environment would essentially be non-stable? Morphologically. Um, right. So as long as, as long as, the interaction energies which are maintaining the structure are comparable to energies which are acting on this system. They can be non-equilibrium in terms of, you know, you're actively pumping this system with energy. So if these scales are comparable, then you start to get all these fluctuations and flows and interesting things. Right. 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 Uh, So sort of that's, that's the scenario in which biological structure or shapes are placed, mm. right? Mm. And then you think of various other things when you think of, uh, of, of biology. I mean, one of the most important things being, uh, uh, so the way I like to think about biology in some sense is um, going back to the Aristotelian view of, of, of form and shape and so on. So where he calls... Where he calls uh, matter as potentiality mm-hmm. and form as actuality. 
mm-hmm. right? So similarly in biology, so you have the potential for a form encoded in the DNA, mm-hmm. right? And the various interactions of the DNA and the proteins and so on and so forth. And this potentiality, if you will, gives rise to some form. Which Again, is it's the, the function form... Right, so you're sort relationship of yeah. So you're sort of going from this this sort of one-dimensional strand of information, which is and, a blueprint, which kind of gets translated. And then you're translating into. that into either a cell or a bunch of cells coming together and forming a sheet, which then morphs into a fly, and you know all of this kind of stuff, right? Mm. So, mm. so there's that aspect to shape and form in biology as well, mm. right? Mm. Um, mm. And to come back to this point of topology that you brought about, mm. uh, one might think of, you know, um, isomorphisms of some sort, mm. where, for example, an individual cell is is isomorphic to a sphere. Yeah. Right? Um, or, uh, uh, but if you look at a fly, for example, right, it's isomorphic to a a torus because it has a mouth and an anus. And and so it's it's a very interesting transition in the formation of this morphology that you're going from a sphere essentially to a torus. Yeah. Right? And you're doing this by dividing, forming multiple cells and somewhere along the way you have to form a whole. Yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah. and then suddenly if you think of but, but you know, I mean, of course, there is a level of abstraction there because isn't all matter porous? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So that's that's what I was going to say again. So while I might have said that a single cell is isomorphic to a sphere, but then there's a lot of holes in this sure. membrane, right? Sure. And so if you start thinking about all those things, then uh, so there there's a scale at which you can sort of coarse grain and say, hey. Now I think of it as a sphere, or sure. now I think of it as a torus, and sure. so on. Is 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 all inorganic matter, or some of your crystals and all of that? Are they all porous? Well, pretty much, because if you consider atoms as spheres, or that's the closest model you can think about. <laughs> the closest but that is backing. an abstraction again, right? I mean, how do you yeah, think? But, but still, what is your imagination on that, Ajayan? After all these years, so. Essentially, even if you look at the closest packed structures right, mm-hmm. that exist, let's say the close packed uh, uh, FCC face centered cubic, you still have 25% of the uh, space empty. You, know, yeah. you, you cannot essentially close pack uh, more than that. So, yeah. in, you know, from, if from that point of view, all matter is porous, but that porosity probably doesn't really provide you the kind of functions that we are talking about in biology. Yeah. Uh, the biological or organic uh, porosity is different and obviously when you go from high symmetry, you know, crystalline materials to less and less uh, symmetric materials and structures, uh, then the porosity could vary quite uh, dramatically. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, one thing I was uh, thinking when you were talking uh, is this kinetic nature of shapes. And it is manifested very nicely in biology, but it also happens all the time in, in organic materials. For mm-hmm. example, you know, the wolf construction that I mentioned is essentially mm-hmm. a static shape, mm-hmm. right? There is no dynamism in that. It's sure. equilibrated and essentially uh, stable uh, once it is equilibrated. But uh, most of the growth, while things are growing, all right, when there is a feedstock and then you're adding dimension and size, uh, then you start getting these kinetic shapes. They may not be the lowest energy forms, but uh, they could be locked in. 
because there is an activation barrier once they form uh, to go into some other shapes. So again, what are the equations being solved in the kinetic so situation? Essentially, what happens when you have you know, growth and morphology evolution during growth mm-hmm. is in addition to the static surface energy criteria, there's also growth velocity uh, vector. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can imagine that... By growth velocity, you mean the rate at which it grows yeah, or ages? the rate at which certain portions of the object grows. Again, right. it's an anisotropic object. So Correct. So it's in relation to the remaining... Yeah, so if, if you imagine there is a, a, a particle with multiple facets, uh, there, the high energy facets will certainly grow faster and gets eliminated. Right? Yeah. So there is various uh, vector, um, uh, you know, growth factors that work in the in a simple crystal growth even right yeah, so yeah, i think yeah. the ultimate shape that you form uh, could be many times this locked in kinetic morphologies yeah, right? yeah and you can see that in many cases for example i worked on carbon nanotubes for quite a long time mm. you know there's certainly uh, a tubular graphitic structure is less uh, energetically stable compared to a flat graphene sheet right mm. so mm. I but think, but these structures similar to nanotubes do they exist in nature yeah, I mean, there are many, um, you know, asbestos kind of thing. You know, there are clay minerals that have tubular structures. Mm. Uh, there are zeolites, which has got very well-defined pores. So but are those dimensions at nano-dimensions? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah? Uh, certainly yeah. nano-dimensions, yeah. Uh, I think it's very interesting, Shashi. Can we, is there a way of thinking of the notion of isotropy and anisotropy in the context of swarms, for example? Is there yeah. a way of, uh, you know what I mean? Because That's essentially we're talking of uh, yeah. units in this unit group, uh, relationships and group dynamics. Yeah, indeed. Uh, in Totally. I mean, so w- w- a very interesting anisotropic material, mm-hmm. for example, is, is a so-called liquid crystal, mm. you mm. know, where you have rod-like molecules, mm. you know, and they align along their major axes. Right? <laughs> and, and so a lot of physicists trained in this tradition you saw bird flocks and said, "Hey, that looks like a liquid crystal or a magnet." You know, where you have, where you have <laughs> all an these. an angle of orient- Yeah, so yeah, you might think of you might think of birds as little arrows. Yeah. Right, and and so the flock essentially is all of these arrows aligned. Yes. In a certain direction. Yes. And this group is moving mm. as a whole. Yes. So also this bacteria, right, that contains exactly. the magnetic particles, exactly. it's anisotropic as well, right? Exactly. So you have, so there you have a shape anisotropy, yeah. which is manifesting in the flock. So mm. here you might treat the bird as a point for mm-hmm. for um, for the again a level of course graining of course there's an isotropy in the bird itself right that there's a head mm-hmm. and the tail and yeah. there, there they're are all different and, <laughs> and, and so on so so there's that viewpoint as well of an isotropy are there different kinds of swarms or are all swarms similar in fundamental ways when you're saying different kinds of swarms, I'm I'm thinking uh, different scales. Yes, sure, there are different scales. Uh, there are also different swarms in the or flocks in the sense some, like wildebeest flocks, they're all just moving in one big direction. But then when you see mosquitoes hovering over your head, that's also a swarm. But then there's no global orientation. You just have a cloud, point cloud, right? And they're so there's there's still some very interesting correlations between the movements. It's not all random, right? So very similar. So this correlation is very obvious to you that everything is moving in the same direction, mm. right? Whereas a swarm of flies or mosquitoes, even though you feel like it's just a cloud that's moving there. But is there and, something interesting about the geometry of swarms? So if you look at bird flocks, for example, I mean, I'm I'm 
I'm sort of going back and forth between swarms and flocks. That's okay. Uh, sure. But so it's a group of moving things. Let's sure. say right. Um, so w- when one looks at a V formation, that's a very obvious shape, right? So you have, and there's a particular advantage associated with that, and so right. on. But if you look at much larger numbers, like there's this phenomenon called murmuration. Yeah, of course. Right. So, and this seems like a very nebulous cloud that's um, that's moving about in very complicated, contorted ways. Mm. Uh, but then, careful. Imaging and analysis of some of these flocks reveal that a lot of these are very disc-like. You know, so there's a certain thickness. To disc-like. These. There are there's a certain thickness to these uh, flocks. Closer so to the center. So there's, so there's a group that is uh, somewhat thick in one, like a fixed thickness in one dimension. Mm-hmm. And then you can think of the sheet as folding over and draping over and mixing into itself and so on and so forth. Right. Right. Well, right. What so, is the driving force for them to form these kind of shapes? That's a very interesting question, right? Um, one, <laughs> um, one obvious driver which people find is that they use this as a strategy to avoid predation, mm. to mm. basically confuse prey and and create all these kinds of uh, dramatic dances, if you will, right? Uh, and throw it mm-hmm. off. Um, but there are also other motivations, I guess. Uh, for example, the wildebeest are just, you know, getting somewhere or these V formations of the bird, they're using it to migrate, you know, so, so this yeah. kind of stuff. Because the interesting thing about murmurations or flocks or some of these... Uh, groups that we're talking about is that to borrow Ajayan's word, they're kinetic entities. They're moving. Uh, yes. They're not static. Uh, and they're no spherical swarms. I mean, they're no, it's not like we see a sphere flying away. Uh, there are well, blobs we haven't of, seen yet, are, right? Huh? We haven't seen one yet. <laughs> <laughs> there are blobs of fish, you know, so you can get these rolling balls, rolling mills of fish. as they. So mm. they're really nice and sure. round. Oh, and the it? fish are just sort of uh, circling uh, in a uh, around a ball almost, and right. the ball is comprised of fish. Right. 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 Um, so yeah, so they're all kinetic in this. I mean, they're all out of equilibrium because you right. know, these things are so, active and moving and consuming energy and and. You know, so it's on. interesting because this reminds me of self assembly. Right, yes. in inorganic um, space. And just to be, so, I'll, I'll pick on this word inorganic, Ajin, because yeah. you've used it a couple of times. You use it simply to say dead and alive? or Yeah, I think that or is Or you a broader, mean carbon and non-carbon? No, 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 no. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about dead and alive. Okay. Uh, I mean, again, the, within the dead uh, uh, inorganic space, there are also amorphous systems and things like that. Correct, which, which might be it, said to be on the borderline. Yeah. Right, but but when you were talking about these swarms and flocks, it reminded me of self-assembly. You mm. know, because when you have self-assembly, there are multiple possibilities. You could have, you know, a, a system which undergoes assembly and reaches some kind of an equilibrium uh, shape, uh, and that is, you know, partly because of energy minimization. But you could also have non-equilibrium self-assembled structures which are again this kinetically locked structures but right. could, you could even right. have dissipative self-assembled structures which gets degenerated and it's partly because of uh, chemical gradients and some form of thermal gradients available right? exactly so i suppose it's very analogous to the organic it is. world it right? is yeah uh, 
it, it is exactly so this this dissipative assembly that you talked about yeah. um so so one of the ideas is that some of these structures um are are so formed to dissipate in a certain way or mm. dissipate in a you know very efficient or maximum way right um so they so prigogine called them dissipative structures yeah. indeed right right, right. right. um Yeah, how, do you, so, how do you split out the biological and the physical? Because, uh, you know, I think the thing with Ajayan is that he can kind of wish life away, but you can't wish physical forces away, <laughs> right? I mean, he can wish biology. His life biology. is much more complicated than yes. mine. <laughs> <laughs> he can't exclude physics. You can exclude biology. Yeah, so... I mean, but, but I so just it, wanted to inject interjection, sir. There is a beautiful book by D.R.C. Thompson right, uh -huh. on this growth and form. Uh -huh. And he kind of brings in how these physical forces that would act on... in organic world also you know does a lot of uh, things in the organic world yeah exactly so yeah. So, so yeah i was there are similarities and differences but right. of course the differences <laughs> are the ones that make it complicated no i think the interesting mm -hmm. theoretical question is that is there a way for you to rigorously treat physical forces on biological systems or are they always intertwined with the biological signals and what have you if you know what i mean right so i mean everything has to operate under the physical laws and biology is not separate from sure. this is 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 uh right um if you invoke things like consciousness and so on that's <laughs> we are not going to get there but sure. uh, uh biology has to operate under the physical constraints physical forces physical laws and so on and so forth mm. but as you mentioned on top of this there's an element of signaling or some information flow through this which is the aspect of the dna and the gene and the protein that i that that we also alluded to earlier right, right, right. so it's a combination of these two things that gives rise to shape and form so like uh, ajayan was saying there's this classic work on growth and form where drc thompson pointed out the role of these physical forces in shaping biology mm -hmm. for example uh, there's a beautiful um, example of um, of of the of the relation to some structures in the eye mm -hmm. uh, to soap bubbles mm -hmm. you know so if you put a bunch of soap bubbles together they will all come together mm -hmm. um, essentially to minimize surface energy mm -hmm. and they create these foam like shapes and it turns out that very similar processes uh, happen also in biological structures so surface tension and all surface that. tension right, so the interactions all go all the way from molecular scale to macro scale which is a capillary type of interactions exactly probably has dominating fact you know in biology compared exactly. to exactly yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. and so there's also this this uh, like he pointed out uh, uh, the difference between self assembly and and driven Uh, assembly mm -hmm. right so things like these minimum energy surfaces etc et come about when you're minimizing surface energy oh. but biology is by definition out of equilibrium so yes. so that's a great point yep. so so these structures have to face these sort of uh, forces constantly right and in some sense that's what gives rise to something life like that you yeah. have this morphing right. of of shape and you have 
something changing in response to a signal or one uh, or having to do something you know so this is what we associate with life in right, some way right. other than replication and so on and so forth Perhaps so similarity so, will be in the yeah. growth part right where there is a uh, driving force that makes certain shapes yeah but in biology you're always uh, continuously being subjected to these exactly uh, forces exactly so. exactly so is there a way and you brought up the idea of self assembly is there a way to hypothesize what kinds of shapes emerge in self assembly systems is there is there some kind, it, some kind of correspondence is there something yeah there has been a lot of studies done on understanding the effect of shapes of the individual building blocks in the self assembly right but i think the problem to understand and model uh, these kind of phenomena is because it's not restricted to just pairwise interactions it is multi particle interactions when many particles are coming together right right but it's very clear that uh, this shape and isotropy uh, has a lot uh, to play in the ultimate shape and the continuity of shape and the final form that emerges during self assembly oh uh, it's it's a complex problem particularly if it involves um, mu- you know multiple types of forces you know for example you can have simple electrostatic forces Mm. you know that would lead to certain types of assembly mm. one could have hydrogen bonding as in the dna which mm. is much stronger mm. right so in many cases of self assembly you're dealing with multiple forces anisotropy uh, other types of interactions like substrates and environment so it's not easy to predict uh, you know from from a simple point of view how self assembly emerges in shape and mm. form mm. Mm. Uh, but it is very clear that shape has a role to play the shape of particles that participate in uh, assembly shape of the fundamental unit or whatever yes, that is in that unit. context yeah uh, you know it certainly has a role to play in the kind of morphogenesis that occurs during self assembly mm. mm. yeah for example mm. there are some shapes which might give rise so even though it's a very regular structure the individual unit the assembled structure might not have any periodicity right. associated with like a, it might lead to a quasi crystal yeah, for example. fractal for example exactly yeah, exactly right. exactly right right, right. right. Um, right. so to be able to to take a shape and say this is what it's going to do is not always an obvious uh, thing uh, and particularly if the interactions are multiparticle mm-hmm. which is in a way the case of alloys right so if you make yeah. create alloys right. are so the eventual products eventually less formal less regular or th- there is no correspondence again well i mean obviously when you are putting multiple uh, elements into a system mm. you have higher entropy mm. and that plays into how things uh, you know form but when that has impact implications in shape as well mm. so mm. if you go back to the a uh, simple picture of wolf construction you right. know these polyhedral shapes if you introduce other atoms the surface energy gets per- perturbed and the shapes become different right mm. there there could be some reentrant surfaces and all kinds of complications right uh, it's right. the same thing i mean if you if you take a particle which has got a perfect uh, polyhedral uh, shape mm-hmm. and place it on a substrate mm-hmm. right that mm-hmm. interaction also affects the shape Right, right, so, right. Right. I mean, of course, this is uh, because, uh, in a sense, there are no truly non-interacting bodies, right? Every, right. Um, right. In, yeah. in 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 reality, one can abstract well, things away. In space, things are floating around, and yeah, you know, that, that has a certain <laughs> uh, structure. Right, right, right. Is almost all matter three-dimensional or more? Are are they two D? Well, so that that is a good question. And recent times, people talk about this quasi two D uh, materials that have been stable. 
You mean like dye atoms and stuff? Uh, yeah, but also in the inorganic world, graphene, graphene. and graphene, other yeah. atomically thin uh, layered materials. Hmm. So there, the shape has a different meaning because it's basically the whole thing is two dimension, right? Yeah. So then they... Insta- It'll take the shape of the substrate you, say, you leave it on. Yeah, but also if it is finite, you know, uh-huh. it's not infinite, uh-huh. then you can define shapes, but those shapes will be dictated by the edges and the edge energies rather than uh, the surface That's so energies. So mm. it's basically one dimension lower than what you're looking at that dictates how the shapes form, right? Mm. Mm. And is there a way of uh, creating bodies which have more than three dimensions? So if you look at the universe, it's basically a space-time continuum. And, you know, you, they talk about the shape of the universe in that context. No, that's fine. I think right. that's that that's, feels a little bit out of reach to grasp. Yeah. The, uh, in, but is there a way of creating entities which, of course, will have these three dimensions? But Yeah, so uh, I suppose, which, um, you know, uh, complex shapes like minimal surfaces and all, it, it's not very clear what the dimensionality is. Mm. But I'm not so sure if you can create bodies that are more than three dimension. In uh, Right. So, you, I mean, we live in a three... I mean, so the space we perceive is three-dimensional, but if you take an object like a and That's tree, also because we don't live in the nanoscale or, or the equivalent. Uh, right. So, so let's let's take the example of a can, tree. Can right? bodies be at macro, meso scales as well as nanoscales is the question. Yeah, you can have hierarchies, right? You mm. you can have larger systems built from nanoscale objects. Right, right. Right. Um, and this, again, the shape correlation could be quite complicated depending on how they interact, the individual particles. Right, right, right. right. Which, which obviously does not automatically mean that the nanoscale is accessible to the macroscale. They are at a totally different level. Yeah, right. Does so the, so does I was the, mentioning yeah. just a tree in this context, right? Mm. Uh, so the geometry of a, so for a creature that lives on a tree and tree alone, it senses a very different geometry from the three D world that we live in, right? Right. Because it has to go from the branch to the leaf to so there's this sort of hierarchical. You can't just go from one edge to the other. You have to come down yeah. and go up. Okay. Yeah. So there's yeah. this hierarchical nature to it. So there's a fractal dimension associated with it, right? Right. So right. there are these geometries uh, which are somehow embedded in in this three D space right uh, right right um, right, and right. Yeah, is there a way of thinking of life forms in the 2D world well I mean the so, only thing I can think of shadows but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a I, good that's a good example. dark dark well, black graphenes of <laughs> again truly two dimensional maybe not but uh, pseudo two dimensional it is possible quasi two dimensional right? yeah, quasi two dimensional yeah, yeah, yeah. so there are flat creatures yeah which are maybe a single layer thick, a uh, single cell thick. And, and their and metabolism so. is very different because surface to volume is very high, right? Right. I mean, the DRC Thompson talks about all the size versus shape and correlations exactly. and so exactly. on. Right, exactly. right. right. Exactly. And it can also morph potentially between 2D and 3D, right? In some of Yeah, those. indeed. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So there are, for example, bacteria which live on a surface. Uh, so as a collective, it moves like a sheet, but then under some conditions, it morphs into a three-dimensional fruiting body or so on. Mm-hmm. But there are also other interesting uh, organisms like the slime mold or the fizarum, mm-hmm. where this thing... Fizarum. Fizarum polycephalum. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, so this thing is basically a network of tubes uh-huh. and that's the entire creature <laughs> so it can uh, it can form it can fold up 
I can fold up the sheet of tubes, if you will, mm-hmm. and form a complex three-dimensional object, or it can just exist as as this network of or oh, the single cellular organisms, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Right, so that's yeah. that's what the uh-huh, I see those are the ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can any shape be created, Ajayan? Well, you can. Certainly. So if if we I went mean, to a mathematician and asked them to write an equation down for a shape and just pass it on I to you, can you create think it? So I mean, it doesn't have to be regular polygons, or you can you can basically create any shape, but they may not be thermodynamically. They may be unstable, energy, right. but they can be created. Right. So there's a shape called a gumball. Uh huh. So um, so this was entirely inspired by mathematicians where they asked for gombok gombok sorry yes. Gombok. that's yes. right yes. where they asked if the, you know can i create an object which has one stable point yes right? mm. yes and 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 so this guy went around beaches looking for the shape and eventually uh, had to uh, machine it right uh, and so yeah so it's interesting that you can think of shapes but it's not obvious that you can always make them Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, also, mm. one of the things that you had in your notes was, uh, can irregular shapes exist? Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're certainly possible as kinetic shapes, right? Especially things like, again, in the inorganic world, things like dendrites and so on forms because of instabilities uh, and, and gradients that mm-hmm. occurs, right? Mm-hmm. So if something is growing and there is a small perturbation due to fluctuations and the chemical gradient can feed into that perturbation, it can grow in different directions and ultimately it becomes a very complex fractal-like object. Right, right, uh, So right, instabilities, right. again, that follows very much the biology aspect, you know, how things can... Uh, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Right. And is there is there evolution in shapes? Evolution in shapes. So shapes that exist in the biological world today um, that just didn't exist, like, I don't know, whatever, Indeed. 500 million years ago, pick, pick a time frame depending on... Indeed. So, um, so life probably started as some unicellular mm-hmm. form and then um, probably there are various environmental constraints that led to multicellularity and then there's a particular shape that can get selected again depending on the environment and, and so on. So in this sense, yeah. Mm. A lot of evolution is driven by shape in fact, yeah. right? Um, for example, a long neck giraffe will do better than a short necked one. Mm. Uh, that's, mm. that, that's in length but you can imagine situations where uh, maybe food uh, is available if you go through a crevice and so you have to become a thin slender uh, creature and then you're selected for right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. probably do, mm-hmm. i mean it's driven by uh, efficiency and functionality right at some point of time yeah i mean yeah even in yeah. engineering you know uh, certain technologies you go from two-dimensional to three-dimensional right in order to make things more efficient so what does that mean like what do you so have for in example mind? you know the ic the computer chips mm-hmm. right um, basically it was planar from for a long time right in order right. to increase efficiency flat. you start building three-dimensional architectures right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think the biological evolution also may be partly driven by uh, the necessity for more energy or efficiency and other engineering paradigms. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Now, obviously, there's some kind of a correspondence between properties and shapes, right? Right, absolutely. That, right. That's very clear even at the nanoscale. You know, for example, we talk about um, uh, plasmons, the collective oscillation of electrons, mm-hmm. which is very different as you change shape from rod-like to square-like to hexagonal. Oh. Because, oh. Uh, you know, certainly if I make a spherical shape and then I make a faceted shape, there are more corners and edges which are concentrators of electric fields and electrons. Right. And that changes the whole, uh, you know, optoelectronic phenomena. Uh, so I think that is very much there. Catalysis is another example. Right. right. Particle right. size, different facets that are exposed are more reactive. So I think there is a clear correlation between function and shape uh, in the inorganic you know, world. And that can be imposed for various reasons. And correspondingly, can it be said that larger entities are necessarily more complex? Uh, Shashi? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Uh, they might require uh, they might require la- larger number of steps to reach to where they are, but that doesn't necessarily mean more complex. A bacterium is uh, is in the sense probably just as complex as a fly, uh, right? Because it's able to achieve many things like morphing from like living in a two dimensional world to going to a three dimensional world or you know becoming resistant to antibiotic or so it, it, it's able to achieve yeah, very I mean, complex the, the things the genetic complexity of a bacterium may be dramatically higher than you, you and me right so in this hmm. sense it's not necessary that uh, what you perceive as complexity in shape or the largeness or uh, of an object uh, is is anyway related to its functional complexity yeah. right even right. from a purely structural point of view you know you can have a very large single crystal which is very easy uh, to understand because you know it's a, there's no defects in them right what yeah. i'm saying is that uh, you, you can have a very large single crystal material with no defects and that will be the simplest thing to look at whereas you can have but do they exist in nature large uh, single crystals yeah many of the minerals are single crystals and that's why you see those facets that nicely you know, right uh, right as, right as right. the symmetry is exposed right at that scale Right, but uh, you can have small objects like nanoparticles, which is full of defects, and that could be quite complicated. Yeah, and that's interesting. How does is there a way of projecting out and saying that depending on where things stand today, and depending on you know whatever the relative abundance of different elements and minerals and so on and so forth, these are the shapes that are relatively more frequent, relatively less frequent, and so on. And if we were to iterate this forward several millions of years, billions of years, Again, this is where us. it's going to go. Is there is there a predict Stability to the formal evolution of... Well, I mean, Shashi will probably say about biology, but from uh, my perspective, there has been a uh, you know consistent and dedicated effort to understand shape engineering, uh, basically to create shapes that you want, mm-hmm. uh, to understand the heterogeneities that uh, create shapes, mm-hmm. to look at shape-mediated self-assembly. You know, because shape plays a major role in engineering nanocrystals and uh, maybe even larger crystals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I And mean, is there a way of uh, kind of turning the previous question around where we were thinking of the link between properties and shapes mm-hmm. and to say that if two bodies, entities, loosely used, have similar properties, then they're very, very likely to have similar shapes? 
yeah i mean the self similarity you could bring in and say that that is true uh, but again the other things are compositions and you know you can have same shape but different elements and that, that would be very different right right uh, but right. Uh, um, yeah if it is the same composition and same shape it probably will have similar properties at right. least in the inorganic world right right what about the life world shashi so it's clearly almost the i mean the material of life is almost the same for every creature that you can think about more or less right? what do you mean by that so it's it's mostly carbon based right carbon uh, and water based yeah, and all the macromolecules like the dna or the proteins or the lipids uh, they're all very similar is anaerobic life different anaerobic life just uses uh, does not use oxygen right it just uses a different uh, metabolic path mm. uh, but but the materials are still similar so mm. it would be very interesting to find non carbon based life and then maybe some of those forms are different some mm. of those functions are different um, are there shapes right? that surprise you are there shapes that have surprised you well i mean you know for example quasi crystals are a surprise to the scientific community what because, do they look like well because five fold symmetry is not really space filling right so people for a long time thought that you cannot have five fold symmetry in nature mm-hmm. but then what do you mean by five fold symmetry well five fold you have a five fold axis you know right. rotate um, uh, five times you get to the same point right? right but i think those things have been discovered and it is uh, a stable uh, entity and so there are some surprises the two dimensional structure maybe pseudo two dimensional that was also a surprise people thought that uh, you cannot have stable two dimensional materials right but graphene like materials exist in nature yeah but they are you know as part of a layered system where individual layers are uh, bonded by b van der waals forces right I mean, right you, you never really thought that you could have an isolated atomically thin layer which could have some interesting behavior so is it easy to build graphene uh, ajen yeah so originally they started off peeling layer by layer by was scotch tape was it difficult tape. in the beginning at all or it was just no, a part I mean, and it's no i mean people uh, have been peeling graphene out of graphite for ages you know right. they used for various things including imaging and so on but was it just an engineering challenge or there was something conceptual no, about it no i think the discovery of graphene was uh, a change in the way they looked at this layer that you peeled off right and they found some exciting physics in it mm-hmm. but then the from, from the point of view of growth and shape and more apologies uh later people figured out that you can grow large area graphene by vapor phase growth right single layer mm-hmm. and that was a, a challenge because nu- typically nucleation and growth produces three dimensional objects right all right and this the challenge was to find the right conditions maybe through surface diffusion and other methods mm-hmm. to just have a layer grown on a substrate mm-hmm. and not thicker right so that that part was interesting from a growth perspective little bit like the semiconductor technologies you just build a layer well semiconductor technology basically they make glass single crystals and slice correct correct discs out right correct. here you had to grow bottom up and restrict and the growth and you build the slice right you, right right that's very so, what let's let's think about the notion of time because clearly for shapes to evolve it needs time because mm-hmm. you know there's energetics involved and so on right right is there a way of looking at a shape and saying that this may have taken this amount of time to come to be is there is there something determinate about that is there a way for you to look at a crystal and say that 
uh, if it indeed started from these constituents or whatever it might have been, mm-hmm. it has probably taken this amount of time with a reasonable degree of accuracy. Is there a way of uh, well, saying that have... correspondingly in your context, Shashi, is right. there a way of looking at a certain life form morphologically right. to say that, you know, okay, it's, this has probably been in existence in this form yeah. for whatever. I think you know is, what I mean. It right. is possible, but not with just that information. You know, I think What else inf- do you need to know? Well, probably you need to know um, the concentration of the feedstock and maybe the temperature conditions in my case, right? Mm. So you can basically uh, speculate what, how much time would it have taken for it to grow to a certain size. Right. And maybe if you see that it is certain crystal habits that dominate, then you can look at... You've used the word crystal habits before. Crystal habits are fa- facets, basically, faces, you know, right. uh, planes, right? Right. certain types of planes. Right. So if you clearly know, you know what uh, facets they, these crystals have, then you could possibly think about what the growth rates could have been. Right. But that would be, again, simplified in the sense that uh, the, the structure is pretty uniform and homogeneous. Uh, of course, if you have a complex shape, then it becomes uh, much more difficult. Mm. But I suppose you can model those growth rates in different scenarios. Is it possible to do that, Shashi, in your context? In biology, it's, uh, it's slightly different because you could have a very complex... These are interacting systems of a whole bunch of things no, happening also evolving systems in the face of competition and so on, right? So if right. you might have had a very complex shape organism that's just competed out and replaced by a much simpler shape, if you want to think about it that way, but its functionality is better suited for that, or better adapted for that local environment. For example, if we go to the... And we leave that situation aside for a bit, and if we go to the situation of swarms, and if you, if I were to show you a snapshot of a swarm, and if if there was a, I don't know if there's a way of defining initial conditions or whatever, one million units, a hundred units, or whatever that is, can you look at a situation and say it's probably been swarming for this much time? There's no good way of saying. There's no way of saying that because uh, so so these are all systems where uh, very small changes in the initial conditions can lead to large changes in a snapshot that you're seeing but you can roughly tell about the features of the uh, of the flock or the snapshot right mm. for example when when birds all started out mm. they're probably fairly disordered right yeah. and then when you have an actual flock gradual all, movement so you can from right extreme you, entropy to some kind of order evolving right. you can say something like that i guess but then if you give me a starting condition which is already ordered there's no way for you to predict what that initial condition was from, let's say, a much further down ordered state of this thing, right? All you can say is it was ordered and it is no, It depends on how homogeneous the system is and how the nature of interactions are, right? right. Yeah. And are there, are there surprising swarm behaviors in non-homogeneous systems as well? Or is it always only birds, only ants, only wildebeest? I, I, I think that's a great example of non-heterogeneous uh, collective motion, if you will. And and uh, there's very little obvious about something like this, right? right. And uh, again, by definition, it's non-equilibrium. It's driven by very interesting causes and forces and, uh, yeah. Interesting. What are the open questions? What are the open questions in this context, Shashi? If we were to think of um, the shapes of organisms that might exist, will will it is, is it just a randomized series of outcomes? Of course, it's not random in the true sense of the word, but what would surprise you 
about the morphology of uh, what might exist several I mean we still so one of the biggest open questions still in biology is how does shape come about at all like uh, like like i mentioned earlier you're taking this information and then that that somehow being uh, through of sequence because the context of, of rgn is different is starting from a unit which at least has some kind of formal structure right in, right over here you have some some information in, yes, in the form information of genes, it's I not, guess, right? But is it known wh- where the information is for shape formation? This is not entirely clear, right? right? Because one you, would... You mean, is there a gene for yeah, it? Yeah, 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 right, right, right. right. One right. would think that, you know, so a lot of the structures are dynamic in the sense they're coming about because of a di- dynamical process. At the end of the day, we all look kind of similar. Yeah. Right. So, so there's there something some, about so there's something right. which is encoded uh, mm. in this in this gene and the genome and so on. Yeah. The way I like to think about it is that it's sort of a pointillist object, you know, where each gene or a network of genes give rise to one point or cl- uh, in 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 some in some uh, abstract space, and all of those points put together give rise to the shape of this organism. If you want so to the, think about it, so way. the eventual shape is emergent. It's not. It's coded. very emergent, right? It's so not if coded. you if you change so maybe something no about gene this, for it for sure. There's a gene for everything else, and this is the outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. So you might change one gene, and then it it interacts in a large network. And then it moves one of these points in this pointless cloud by a little bit, and that changes. Fundamentally the enough, and while all of us look very different, or something, something to that something effect. Something to that effect, yeah. But right. broadly, the shapes are kind of similar, right? These, right. So this is also the kind of point I was trying to make earlier about going from a sphere to a torus. So if you coarse grain it to these levels, there are similarities in shape. Right? Like you can tell a human apart from a tree, for example, right? Right, uh, right. But then I, I can tell you apart from me based on your shape and my right. shape, right? right. So, right. so there are those sorts of levels of uh, uh, looking at these shapes. Uh, and is there a way of flipping that question into your domain, Ajayan, and saying is there an equivalent of a gene in, in your context? Probably there is no equivalent of a gene. Um, uh, but I suppose open question for us would be more this multi-particle system, right? Mm-hmm. Can you uh, can you have, uh, you know, rules and can you write down uh, the right models that allows you to predict self-assembly or some kind of directed assembly? Mm-hmm. You know, especially when particles are inhomogeneous and particle interactions are not, uh, uh, you know, homogeneous again. Uh, is there a way to control and predict self-assembly? You mean non-homogeneous systems can also demonstrate self-assembly? Oh yeah, sure. sure. Absolutely. I mean, they so form they... different patterns and different structures, right? So, so where are we on that? Clearly, um, I think we are very it's, early it's on that. Question. I mean, of course. So again, I think this is a challenge. People are st- struggling to find maybe a few particle system you can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you think about modeling, one of the problem is that uh, you have. Uh, forces that span the entire scale of things, right? From molecular atomic interactions to the macro scale capillary type of interactions. And all these matter. So if you were to model some system like this, you might have to kind of compress details at one scale and, uh, you know, look at it using some kind of a force field model or something. Yeah, keep uh, freezing DVs or freezing. Right. Uh, But that will not again give you a completely clear picture on how... uh, But it is clear that shape mediates self-assessment in some sense, right? <laughs> uh, but that, uh, um, I think we haven't reached a point where we can control and predict self-assembly so that it could be uh, built into a functional form, 
So is, is there a way of extending that and as a corollary stating that if the unit is irregular, then there's definitely no self-assembly, if you know what I mean? No, that is not what I was saying. I mean, self-assembly means just uh, coming together of individual building blocks and forming uh, some But kind those of individual a, building blocks can be of any kind, Control self-assembly maybe, right? Uh, mm. Some regular pattern that you would like to use um, repeatedly. I think that kind of a, a deterministic structure might be difficult yeah, to Self-assembly doesn't necessarily mean emergence of regularity. Yeah, yeah right. right. No, so I, I can have... Sure, I mean, it's not about emergence. Or even regularity, let's not forget. Even, yeah. So it does not even mean regularity at the level of the unit, is what you're saying. Yeah, it can yeah, it be a very be, jagged right? object yeah, and yeah. Uh, a lot of those can come together and form some structure. Mm-hmm. Are there situations where you would ordinarily expect self-assembly and it doesn't happen? Well, again, I, I mean, things can come together, right? If you you know bring it together and have some forces that connect them. But it may not happen in the way you want to see it happen. Again, right. you know, you can end up with lots of kinetic shapes. And but Ajayan, your instinct is that this is essentially an interplay of forces. It's right? an interplay of forces for I mean, sure. Period. I right. Mean, Multiple types of forces and different length scales for the forces. And if you can understand all these... And another tricky thing about, you know, the synthesis, uh, particularly at the nanoscale, is that there are very few techniques where you can make real homogeneous building blocks. So right. you, when you're talking about self-assembly, you're really dealing with particles that are, have some intrinsic variation, and that uh, becomes problematic. You know, rather I would have thought the opposite, um, because if you're at a more fundamental unit, are they? Isn't the chance of them being identical to each other higher? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, again, as I was saying, when particles are very, very small, they can fluctuate and they can remain in different forms, and it's not easy to control their stability, right? Um, and again, if you, I mean, these days you can synthesize particles in specific shapes, but again, the yield is not 100%. So you end up with a, homo, in a non-homogeneous mixture of building blocks. Right. And that's the fundamental issue here. What would be the smallest nanoparticle you can think of? You can form clusters of a few atoms. Carbon atoms? Yeah, I mean, for example, C6. When you say few, you mean 10, 100, 1,000? Yeah, even metal clusters of less than 10 atoms can exist. But they would be but quite... But metal, two metal clusters of 10 atoms are not identical to each other. Is, you know, what not necessarily. Not Depends necessarily. On, is yeah, what the interactions of the environment, because they're free right. energy surfaces. Because they still flat. sit in a context. Right. Right, right. So that that there is this intrinsic instability in the system as you become very, very small. Right. So the shape has kind of a different meaning. You know, we coined this term quasi-melting for particles that are very small mm-hmm. because they're not really thermodynamically molten, but their morphologies are continuously changing. <laughs> right? So Yeah, in a way, the notion of a shape dissolves the the moment you go to such scales. Yeah, I mean, if you have a a, a particle that continuously changes its form from simply from energy that is available to the environment, what what do you call it? It's not not molten because you have a crystalline phase. Correct. But it's not static either, right? In the the sense in which we use the word shape. And that's beautiful. Well, thank you. I think that's a great note to end this on. Thanks to both of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Take care.